is the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. And on today's show, I've got Patrick McEwen. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks very much, James. Uh, for the people that don't know about you and the Oxygen Advantage, can you give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I came across the whole concept of the relationship between breathing and health back about 20 years ago. Um, it's, I heard of the work of this Russian doctor. His name was Konstantin Buteyko. And during the 1960s, he was commissioned by the Soviet space mission to do research to determine what was the ideal composition of oxygen for human beings in space. So a lot of his research was involved with that. Um, it was a top secret project at the time. And he also had a huge interest in health. His blood pressure was very high and he was able to connect or he thought there was a connection between his breathing and his blood pressure. So he started changing his breathing. Now, he said two things. He said, breathe through your nose and he said, breathe lightly. And in 1997-98, I started doing that and it completely changed my life. Because before that, I thought that it was good to take big breaths. I was told so many times, um, I'd read different books, take this deep breath, take this big breath into, into your lungs, fill your lungs full of air. Because there seems to be a belief out there that the more air you breathe, the better. But it's completely wrong, you know, and switching to nose breathing. I had my mouth open for about 20 years. I was tired all the time. I had sleep disruptions. I had asthma. My nose was constantly blocked and I was stressed. And all of those things are affected by how you breathe. So what I want to do over the next few minutes is, is completely turn upside down how breathing is conventionally taught. Because from what I see and know, that the vast majority of people who are instructing yoga and Pilates, that they are instructing their clients to increase their breathing. And in actual fact, to get more oxygen delivered from the blood to the cells, you need to slow down your breathing and breathe less, not more. You should never hear anybody breathing during rest. If you go to a yoga studio or a Pilates studio, you should never hear anybody breathing during very light postural changes. Breathing should be light. You're an athlete, James. You know a good athlete will have light breathing for a given level of physical exercise in comparison to somebody who is unfit. Like if you think of somebody who's very unfit and they're going for a jog, they're really out of breath. Mm. They're breathing hard for the given level of exercise. So light breathing is good for health. But the whole Western world, we seem to be hung on this idea that the more air we breathe, the better. Well, I'm going to say to you that the more air we breathe, the more we cause our blood vessels to constrict and the less oxygen that's delivered to the tissues. So with breathing, less is more. And authentic practitioners of breathing will have spoken about the importance of breathing lightly. To give you a few examples, Master Chris Pei, he's a grandmaster in, in Qigong. And he said there's three levels of breathing. The first level is to breathe smoothly so that the person next to you cannot hear you breathe. The second level is to breathe smooth that you cannot hear your breathing. And the third level 
is to breathe smooth or softly so that you cannot feel your breathing. With breathing during rest, we should not feel it, we should not hear it, it should be entirely effortless. And other yoga books, 1903 yoga book, the importance of breathing through the nose, both in and out of the nose. Uh, 1979, your breathing should be so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. So hard breathing is fast breathing, is noticeable breathing, and that would increase our stress levels. Because when we get stressed, our breathing changes. With stress, our breathing gets faster. We breathe more using the upper chest. We take more air into our lungs. We sigh more. We often breathe through the mouth and we often hear it. And then people talk about the importance of taking a deep breath to help with stress. Well, you're already breathing too much during the stress. So how is a deep breath or a big breath going to help you? In actual fact, we should be doing the opposite. If you breathe fast, it will increase your stress. Stress makes your breathing faster, but fast breathing feeds into the stress. So if you get stressed, the best thing you can do is slow down your breath. And by slowing down your breath and minimizing your breathing, you can take your body from a stressed state into a more relaxed state pretty quickly. Like it's amazing what you can do with the breath. And we also do breath holding for athletes and we do breath holding for people say with asthma. So we purposely have them hold their breath for periods of time and this disturbs blood gases and it also it helps open up the airways. But in terms of athleticism, um, we can show that studies show you can improve aerobic capacity, you can improve anaerobic capacity, you can improve respiratory muscle strength and um, you can help people with asthma. So you can help quite significantly across the spectrum of things by changing your breathing. But again, I'm going to come back to it. It's not about taking the big breaths that's commonly taught. And in order to teach breathing, one should have a basic medical understanding of what breathing is all about. You, you should not be teaching breathing if you don't understand how oxygen is delivered from the blood to the cells. And many people are teaching, they're teaching about breathing and talking about breathing hard to get more oxygen delivery to the cells, when it's the opposite that's happening. I think, like, like you say, Patrick, with the the breathing hard from from an athletical standpoint, when you're breathing hard, yes, you're struggling to get oxygen. In it, so you're trying to generally, when you see that from an athletic standpoint, is when you are in fatigue anyway. Yes, yes, but breathing hard, like when I use the expression breathing hard during rest, it just means that we can notice the person's breathing quite easy. Now. James, you're right. During physical exercise, our breathing is going to increase. That's normal. But for a given level of exercise, how much does it increase by? And that's really the question. Whereas a really fit athlete, um, breathing, of course, will increase, but that athlete can do a lot with the oxygen intake. Whereas you could have somebody who is difficulty walking up a flight of stairs. So here the individual is breathing hard, but physically they're not doing anything that's all that demanding. Mm -hmm. But yet they're getting breathless. And a lot of the population get breathless very easy. You, you can test your breathlessness. Uh, we've got a measurement called the, the BOLT. It's called Body Oxygen Level Test. It's a very simple idea. 
It's been supported by quite a number of papers. You take a, a breath into your nose, a breath out through your nose, and you pinch your nose, and you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And at that point you breathe in, but your breathing should be normal. And the lower the bolt score, the harder one breathes. The higher the bolt score, the less breathless. And there was a, an author called William McArdle. He wrote a book. It's a fairly recent book. It's 2009, Nutrition and Physical Exercise. And it's a United States book. So he says in that that if an athlete exhales, they should be able to hold their breath for 40 seconds before the urge to initiate inspiration. In other words, that if you breathe in, a normal breath in, normal breath out, and you pause and hold your breath, you should be able to hold your breath for 40 seconds before you feel the urge to breathe in. Now, most athletes will not hold their breath for 40. Um, most of the athletes I work with start off, they, they hold it for 15 to 20 seconds. But we try and get them to 40. We don't get them all to 40. It'll take them quite a bit of work. However, every time the bowl score increases by five seconds, the athlete would feel better. Because if we're breathing really soft and slowly through the nose during rest, that will influence, um, it improves arterial oxygen uptake. Nose breathing improves the amount of oxygen uptake in the blood by between five and 15%. But the importance of nose breathing also is synonymous with what's called ventilation perfusion. So if you think of the lungs, the lungs are triangular like this. If we breathe through an open mouth, we tend to, to bring more ventilation into the top part of the lung. But the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower part. So by breathing through your nose, you activate the diaphragm. You carry air deeper into the lungs, but it's a light breath. But also by breathing through your nose, you pick up in a gas called nitric oxide. And as nitric oxide is carried into the lungs, nitric oxide brings the blood from the lower parts of the lungs to the upper. Nitric oxide also sterilizes the air and it's also a natural bronchodilator. So any of your listeners who may be prone to asthma or prone to cyclist cough or prone to inflammation of the airways that they feel that, you know, their airways are a little bit kind of raw um, nose breathing is huge because if you're breathing with an open mouth, you're literally sucking moisture out of the airways and you're going to cause them to inflame. People who are <clears throat> prone to colds and chest infections, they need to breathe through the nose because your, your nose has such, you know, the functions performed by it that it's, it's absolutely imperative that we breathe through the nose in order to condition the air before it's brought into the body. And... All animals, with the exception of a dog, nose breed. Pretty much all. But 50% of children are going around with their mouths hanging open. And probably the same for adults, but there's no studies of it. And there's no studies because it's been seen as this kind of, this is normal. Mouth breathing with an adult is normal. But I'm going to tell you that mouth breathing with an adult should not be normal. And anybody who wakes up with a dry mouth in the morning, their sleep is going to be affected. I've looked at the studies with this. You know, they've had individuals, they block their noses on one night and they have them breathe through the nose the second night and they compare the sleep quality and there's no comparison. Nose breathing, you don't have, nose breathing, you have a deeper sleep, you have a better sleep, less sleep disruptions, less risk of sleep disorder breathing. You wake up more alert, more concentration. Mouth breathing, 
disrupt sleep. You wake up tired. Not everybody, not 100%, of every, not completely 100% of all people who mouth breathe wake up tired, but many do. And uh, so I spent the last 15 years talking about the importance of nose breathing and breathing light. How can you change your breathing to activate the relaxation response and also to improve your ability to do physical exercise? Not just for the elite athlete at your level, but we're talking about the guy who just wants to get up off the couch because if the guy who's been sitting on the couch, if he goes out and does physical exercise, he gets too breathless and he gets fed up with it because he feels he can't make progress. Well, if you change your breathing while you're sitting at the couch and you improve your both score, well, then when you go and do physical exercise, it will be easier because you won't be as breathless. Because a lot of people are put off from doing physical exercise. They try too hard, too quickly, as opposed to working with their body. And I think it's important to change your breathing. You know, there was a paper by Morton in 1995, and they looked at the difference between nose breathing and mouth breathing. Nose breathing, the amount of oxygen that was delivered to the tissues was increased versus mouth breathing. So, you know, in terms of what would be the benefits of nose breathing? Well, during childhood, nose breathing helps develop the shape of the face. It helps to drive the jaws forward, gives plenty of room for the tongue. Nose breathing helps improve airway formation. Um, conversely, mouth breathers, they've got more dental cavities, gum disease, bad breath, forward head posture, and reduced respiratory muscle strength. So if we leave our children with their mouths hanging open, up to the age of 10 or 11, it's too late. And given that 50% of studied children now are habitual mouth breathers, there's a problem here. Um, one sleep doctor, his name is Dr. Christian Gimeno, he discovered the condition called obstructive sleep apnea back in the 1970s. And he's writing about this now recently. He's talking about the importance of nose breathing during sleep in children. We must have our children breathe through the nose. But of course, the same goes with adults. But wouldn't it come come back to um, to a certain extent? Why why do why do they find that kids have their mouths open nowadays? Because you're thinking you would want to. Uh, well, it's a if it was in the in the classroom as a form of etiquette. Why would you have your mouth open in the first place? Socially, it's very unattractive to have the mouth open, but it's very commonplace. There was a book written back in the 1800s. It was written by an American painter called George Caitlin. And he went to study the North American Indian traditions. And he wrote the book. It's called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. And that's where I got the idea from the TED Talk. I stole it from him. So basically, you'll get that book free on Google. It's called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. It was written in something like 1848 or I can't remember the exact date. But... He talks about the North American Indian settlers. When the baby had the mouth open, the mother used to go over to the baby and press the lips together. And he talked about the, the sleep quality of the North American Indians in comparison to the European settlers, gasping for breaths with their mouth open. Now, you know, if you look at any animal, an animal who's having the mouth open is not well. And even though society looks down on mouth breeders, like mouth breeders are usually portrayed negatively. They're usually portrayed as kind of these guys of lesser intelligence. I can say that because I was a mouth breeder myself for 20 years. 
Um, and 30% of the UK population, 30% of the Western population have rhinitis. So they have allergic rhinitis or perennial rhinitis, so it's difficult for them to breathe through the nose. But you can change that. To, to unblock the nose, will I show you there? Yeah, if we are, that'd be grateful if you can share that tip. Sure. Take a small breath into your nose. Well, first of all, now you've got quite wide, good facial structure. So you mightn't have, whereas if you compare it to mine, my nostrils are very narrow and small. I was a mouth breather during childhood. I have a very high palate. You see that I'm wearing dental, dental brackets in, straight in my teeth. That's all related to mouth breathing. My nose is crooked. My jaws are set back. I wouldn't have been an athlete, never. Not in a million years. If I kept on training, no matter how hard I trained, physically, I would have been in a disadvantage in comparison to a guy with nose breathing. We need wide facial structure. You need good airway. We need good breathing, but we also need good airway. And this is the thing. All of those athletes, there are those parents who want their kids to, to you know, the kid might love being in athletics. But if that kid has gone around with the mouth open, you know, the chances are they're not going to reach where they want to. Look at the facial profiles of athletes. They have generally good-looking faces, and they've got functionally good faces. It's not the face that we're, is important. It's the airway. This is the fuel pipe. And if the fuel pipe is the size of a paper straw or a cocktail stick, forget about it. it no matter how good your breathing is, if you can't get air to and from your lungs, you're not going to run a race. So the exercise to unblock the nose is take a small breath. So you, you're, what I'm saying here is that you may not have nasal congestion, so you mightn't necessarily feel it, whereas somebody else will. So what I'd suggest is any of your listeners, if they feel that their nose feels a little bit stuffy, try this. So I'll show it to you anyway. Take a small breath in through your nose, small breath out through your nose, Pinch your nose and sway holding your breath. Sway holding your breath. And keep holding your breath, James, until you feel a pretty strong air shortage. So keep holding your breath until you feel a pretty strong air shortage. Keep holding your breath until you feel a pretty strong air shortage. Keep relaxing into the body. When you feel a strong air shortage, let go but breathe through your nose. Maybe try it there, into your nose. And then wait. Now your eyes have gone glassy, which is normal. So what happens there is you hold your breath, carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, and nitric oxide builds up in the nasal cavity, and that'll open up your nose. Now there may be other factors involved too, including heat. Because when you breathe in through your nose and out through your nose, your nose captures the heat as it leaves your body. Your nose also captures moisture as it leaves the body. And it's by the nose capturing both heat and moisture that keeps the nose open. That's why not to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth, we lose moisture, we lose heat, and it causes the nose to get blocked. And from an athletic point of view, um, obviously you see the likes of, well, you say rowers, swimmers, obviously they will well, rowers more so than swimmers, will inhale through their nose and exhale through their mouth, would yes. they be better to be, obviously, at a lower intensive exercise, that's not so difficult to be able to focus on inhaling and exhaling through your nose, but at higher levels of um, 
expenditure, would it be a precursor to do the same? Yeah. Um, when I'm working with just recreational athletes, I want them to breathe in and out through the nose. Now, if they feel very prohibitive, breathing, if they have nostrils like mine, for example, doing sports because the, the, their structure is affected, it may be necessary for them to, to, there's different products on the market. One is called the turbine, and I have no financial interest whatsoever. Um, but the turbine is a nasal dilator. It's a little plastic thing that you put up into the nose and it opens up the nose. It works like this. So it's called a cocker maneuver. If you put one finger here, one finger here, and if you prize your nostrils, it'll improve nasal patency. So with recreational athletes, we encourage nose breathing all the time, 100% exclusively. But with a leash, we encourage it about 50% of the time. I want nose breathing to add an extra load onto the athlete. I want nose breathing to get diaphragmatic breathing, etc. But I want mouth breathing to maintain um, conditioning. Okay. Because the nose, the nose during rest and during physical exercise imposes a resistance of about 50%. So, now if you get an athlete to switch to nose breathing, they'll build up their fitness levels pretty quickly anyway. But with an elite athlete, I want to make sure that they have the, they do exercise to make sure that the conditioning of their muscles is kept intact. Mm. So, we do a combination of the two. The other, the other thing about nose breathing is that it's adding an extra load onto the athlete and psychologically, it's pushing the athlete into a state of greater breathlessness. Now, what this does is the feeling of air hunger. We have what's called, if you were looking at the central governor theory, that it's the brain that limits the ability to continue with intense physical exercise. So, but you can train the governor. And you can train the governor. We do nose breathing, but we also do breath holding. So I will get the athlete to do nose breathing which will slow them down a little bit, but I get them to do breath holding while they're running, and this really disturbs their blood gases. And it causes the body to make adaptation that we put the body, we put the athlete into a state of anaerobic glycolysis. Now normally a sprinter would have to be sprinting hard during training to get this anaerobic glycolysis. And the problem with that is that there's a risk of injury. You, you don't want to be injured during your training. Mm -mm. You don't want to be training so hard that it increases the risk of injury. So therefore, when you come to the, real, the race, you can't, you can't compete. So what we do is we do nose breathing and breath holding to get that state of anaerobic glycolysis. But you can do it with moderate physical exercise. This is less traumatizing on the athlete. And at the same time that the athlete is, is enhancing their buffering capacity. So we would have slightly different program from your elite athlete to your recreational athlete. Or for your individual, like I work with kids from five years of age. If they're going around with the mouth open, how we teach a five-year-old child is going to be entirely different than how we teach a 20-year-old. And what I, when we were talking off-air, um, obviously of the benefits of no, nose breathing, what I found quite surprising was the increase in both... Uh, 
that you can increase your both your VO two max, uh, your tolerance to lactate, and also improving your EPO. Yes. Can you can you give a little bit of an explanation to the listeners into what we talked about? Sure. Well, VO two max would be the amount of oxygen delivered to the tissues during you know pretty intense physical exercise during a short period of time. Um, it's going to be related to your blood oxygen carrying capacity. And when you do breath holding, there's a, a couple of things that happen. One is that there's going to be less oxygen availability because if you hold your breath, you're not replenishing the oxygen. So your cells, as you hold your breath, your cells continue to take oxygen. But by holding your breath, you're not replenishing it. So the amount of oxygen then the blood is going to reduce. And when the oxygen, the amount of oxygen or the concentration of oxygen in the blood reduces, your spleen, which is an organ located under the diaphragm, that contracts and your spleen is your blood bank. So holding the breath forces the spleen to release more red blood cells into circulation. And it's red blood cells that carry oxygen. The second effect is EPO. So EPO is, um, it's a hormone, and one of the functions of EPO is to send a message to the bone marrow to release more red blood cells into circulation. Not to release, but to produce more red blood cells. So by holding the breath, the kidneys, and to a lesser extent the liver, become hypoxic. That the amount of oxygen is lowered. And what happens then is that the kidneys will synthesize EPO. And EPO then will cause the red blood cells in the bone marrow to mature and to release. So holding of the breath, you can, in effect, simulate high-altitude training. It improves oxygen-carrying capacity and by virtue will, will increase VO2 max. And this has been shown in a number of studies whereby VO2 max can increase across an eight-week period, two months, by up to 10.79%. So the second benefit, say for instance, would be in terms of delaying the lactic acid, in that when we hold our breath, there's less oxygen availability. So now your tissues are working without oxygen, so they release hydrogen ion, but the hydrogen ion doesn't get oxidized because there's not sufficient oxygen. So instead the hydrogen ion associates with pyruvic acid and forms lactic acid. And lactic acid is implicated in causing fatigue. By holding the breath, we increase hydrogen ion. But also by holding the breath, we increase carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide in the blood dissociates into hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. So we've got an increased hydrogen ion coming from the carbon dioxide, and we've got an increased hydrogen ion coming from the lack of oxygen to the tissues. So we have a double hydrogen ion effect. So this is acidosis. This is putting the, the blood into a state of acidosis. Now, this is where the body has to increase the buffering capacity to try and neutralize or offset this. And by doing breath holding then repeatedly as part of practice, then when you come to competition, you have a, a greater buffering capacity to be able to delay the onset of lactic acid and fatigue. So, we spoke about aerobic capacity earlier on. This is about anaerobic capacity. But another thing is the diaphragm. So your diaphragm is your main breathing muscle. It's just located just kind of at the base of the ribs. And it's the floor of your chest. So your thorax, the floor of the thorax is separated from the abdomen by this muscle. 
It's a very thin muscle, but it's very strong. It's prone to fatigue. And you can't improve the strength of the diaphragm by doing physical exercise. No matter how much physical exercise you do, you're not going to improve diaphragmatic strength. You don't improve respiratory muscle strength. So what happens then? How can you train it? Well, we train it by doing breath holding. We have the individual breathe in through the nose, breathe out through the nose and hold our breath. And holding the breath, at some point, the brain will start sending a signal to the diaphragm to contract. So basically, as you hold your breath, you get stimulation of the diaphragm. And the diaphragm is contracting, contracting, contracting. So we can interfere. We can, we can almost give the diaphragm a workout through breath holding. Now, the problem coming back to diaphragmatic fatigue is, if the diaphragm gets tired, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. And if blood is stolen from the legs, the legs fatigue is going to set in the legs. So, you know, it doesn't matter the type of athlete. Again, this can happen during high intensity or it can happen during endurance, Martin, for example. Um, so that's respiratory muscle strength. Asthma, another one. You know, we do breath holding, we do reduced breathing to improve the body's tolerance to different gases, but also to get a bronchodilating effect that the airway is open. People with asthma, if they breathe hard, hard breathing through the mouth, into the lungs, it literally is too much for the lungs, and the airways constrict in response to that. So we change breathing patterns so that the individual doesn't have to breathe as hard during physical exercise. And by breathing through the nose and not breathing as hard, you've got a better moistening and warming effect in the airways, and the airways remain open. And also, they're more likely to remain open. Also, you get the benefits of nitric oxide, and nitric oxide assists with that. So, you know, there's quite a lot going on in terms of this is breathing, and, you know, ironically, it's the opposite to what is normally taught in breathing. We're talking about two things, breathe less and do breath holding, as opposed to taking the big breaths. And some, I'm not saying that all people who work with breathing are telling their people to take big breaths, but many are. And the rule of thumb that I use is if anybody asks me the question, well, if I'm in yoga, how will I know if I've been instructed to increase my breathing? If you can hear people breathing, doing basic yoga postures, their breathing is too much. The whole objective is do your yoga postures, but really slow down the breath. And we would have people slow down the breath to the point that they feel air hunger. And it's almost as if you're, it's the feeling as if you're going for a walk. And the benefits would be, you know, in terms of resetting the respiratory center, that when you do go for your walk, it's a lot easier because your breathlessness is, is less. You can influence the 100,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the body by changing the breath. And by changing the breath, it's about slowing down the breath. So, you know, there's another thing called the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And it's a nest-shaped curve. And basically, it describes how oxygen is released from the red blood cells to the cells. When we breathe in, oxygen comes into the lungs. It takes three quarters of a second for the oxygen to pass from the lungs into the blood. The blood then is brought to the heart, and the heart pumps this oxygenated blood around the body. When the oxygenated blood arrives to the cells, we want the oxygen to go from the blood to the cells. Mm. 
that takes place in the presence of carbon dioxide. But if we're breathing too hard, we remove too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And the bond between oxygen and hemoglobin strengthens. So there's, that's called the Bohr effect. It's based on the Bohr effect. You breathe too hard, your CO2 levels are lowered, and there's a change in pH, and the bond between oxygen and the red blood cells increases. So the whole point is, by breathing lightly, not only can you influence your blood circulation, but you can also influence the amount of blood that's delivered from the cells, from the red blood cells to the tissues. And James, if you think about it this way, if I asked you to take five or six big breaths in and out of your mouth, how does the head feel? You'd feel a bit light. You feel a bit lightheaded because you 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 force you you're not as productive with your lung function because because you, you're increasing it. So you're not as efficient. So what, so what is happening there is that as you're taking the big breaths in and out, it's causing a disturbance to blood gases. And as a result, then, there's less oxygen going to be delivered to the brain. So the carotid arteries constrict. So if I ask somebody to take five or six big breaths in and out of the mouth, the amount of blood flow that's reaching the brain is going to reduce, but also the amount of oxygen that's delivered to the brain is reduced. And that's why taking big breaths is entirely the wrong thing to do. And physiologically, you, you feel it straight away. Many people, you know, if I ask them to take 10 or 20 big breaths in and out, in and out, hard, intense breathing they start to feel lightheaded. Well, lightheadedness isn't because of a super saturation of oxygen. It's because of a reduction or a drop of oxygen that's reaching the brain. Um, and, you know, people will experience it. Why do people with asthma get exercise-induced asthma? They start to breathe too hard. Why do people get laughter-induced asthma? They're breathing too hard during their laughter. Why are people, if they have their mouth open during sleep, waking up tired? Okay, they could stop breathing during their night, which basically they breathe, but then they stop breathing. That's obstructive sleep apnea. Or it could be just that there's not enough oxygen reaching to the brain because of mouth breathing. Mouth breathing is stressful breathing, and it's breathing using the upper chest. And that's why we want to change to nose breathing, using the diaphragm, and light breathing. And that's the oxygen advantage. And Patrick, with... with Obviously, if we look at the example of uh, hyperventilation, obviously there's that yes. precursor that they, in most cases, they use that uh, brown paper bag and it is to yes. take deep, deep breaths. Yeah. Obviously, to control that, would it be better to obviously, to some extent, throw away that methodology and to concentrate more on what you say and think about their breathing and slow it down? Yeah. Um, the brown paper bag was traditionally used by people prone to panic attacks. And people who are prone to panic attacks, their carbon dioxide levels can be quite low. Not with all, but, you know, with money. If I look at the individual with panic attack and I look at their breathing, they, they tend to sigh, sigh more. They breathe more with an upper chest. They have more noticeable breathing. And if I was to measure their bolt time, it's generally about 10 seconds. It's too low. These people are on the verge of symptoms all of the time. Their breathing from the outset is not good. And then they get into their car or they go into a crowded place, and that's a stress for them. 
it makes them breathe harder. And as they breathe harder, they lose carbon dioxide. As you lose carbon dioxide, the amount of oxygen reaching the brain reduces. And that's why they were told to use a brown paper bag. The brown paper bag wasn't to rebreathe in oxygen. It was to rebreathe in carbon dioxide. The whole treatment with panic attacks should be address the dysfunctional breathing from the outset. The brown paper bag is useful as a temporary measurement. And if somebody is using the brown paper bag, they should only take about five breaths in and out of the bag and then remove the bag and have a few normal breaths. Because if you continue breathing in and out of the brown paper bag, your oxygen levels will start to drop. So you need to supplement a brown paper bag with normal breathing. So, so you're doing it that way. But we also have a small exercise called many small breath holds that if somebody gets into panic or anxiety or wants to, to recover from physical exercise, we have them breathe in, breathe out, hold the breath for a count of three to five seconds. Then breathe normal for 10 seconds. Then hold the breath. Then breathe normal for 10 seconds. Then hold the breath. Then breathe normal for 10 seconds. And that also helps to calm the individual down. So the, the concept, the concept of the brown paper bag is correct. It's to bring in more carbon dioxide because it's carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas. In order for oxygen and to be released to the tissues and the blood vessels to open up and dilate, we need carbon dioxide. And for people, Patrick, that are a little bit skeptical of this, yes. uh, obviously I listened to that TED talk you did in Galway about um, uh, obviously the breathing techniques you instilled and you were saying you improved your oxygen intake, was it, by 60 to 70%, whereas before, before that uh, there was no medical medication that could actually help your asthma? Um, well, in terms of the difference it made, I was a lifelong asthmatic for 20 years and I was on quite a lot of medication. And what was happening to me was my medication kept on increasing. So I would have had a number of hospitalizations, etc. Now, I don't think I used the quote 50 to 60 percent in terms of the amount of oxygen for myself because there would have been no way of measuring it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of asthma, it completely changed my life. But it wasn't just asthma. My sleep improved enormously because people with asthma tend to be tired. They tend to be far more tired than the normal population. And there's also an association between asthma and sleep disorder breathing. As asthma severity increases, so does sleep problems. So there's a direct relationship there. But also as asthma severity increases, so does nasal obstruction. Because the, up the nose and the lungs are a unified airway. And inflammation from the lungs can travel to the nose. And inflammation, which is swelling, basically swelling of the airways, can travel from the nose to the lungs. There's a link between inflammation of the upper airways, which is the nose, and asthma, and also inflammation of the upper airways and obstructive sleep apnea, and a link between obstructive sleep apnea and asthma. So when I switched and practiced this, you know, it completely changed my life. Like, what I'd say to people is, practice it. Start breathing through your nose. Ask yourself the question, when you wake up in the morning with a dry mouth, are you waking up tired? Do you find yourself getting excessively breathless during physical exercise? Are you sighing quite a bit? 
Is your breathing light or is your breathing heavy? So ask yourself, well, how are you breathing at this moment and how do you feel? And then spend two weeks focusing on your breathing and gently slowing down the breath. And if you want to do it for nothing, or at least to start doing it for completely for free, go and look at the TED Talk because I give some very basic instruction there of how to open up the nose just as we spoke and how to slow down breathing. So the TED Talk is a great place to start. No side effects, no cost. And I will guarantee you that in the vast majority of people, they will notice quite a difference in a short period of time. And then if you want to go a bit further, there's books available. Uh, the Oxygen Advantage is one. And there's other books. You know, you've got nothing to lose by focusing on the breath. Our mind in Western society is very, very active. We have about 60,000 thoughts every day. And it's estimated that up to 95% of them are repetitive and useless. When you focus on your breathing, you're having your brain hold attention on something for a period of time without distraction. You're training the brain. The human mind nowadays is very active. There's social media, there's emails, there's telephone, there's text messaging, and everything is distracting the mind. And by focusing on the breath, you're training the brain to be able to in increase attention span and concentration. And your ability to focus will determine your quality of work. Somebody with a poor attention span and their mind is all over the place, they're more stressed, they're more anxious, and they've got reduced quality of concentration. And that's what we want to change as well. So even at the very outset, you'll feel calmer. And you'll feel calmer because you'll be thinking less. And it's not about quality thinking I'm talking about. It's the repetitive thinking will start to reduce because you're training your brain to hold its attention on something for that short period of time. Um, this section, I'd like to op I open up to people to ask questions. Um, so in the past, or oh, it's be about, or oh, I'm going to say about a decade ago now, I did huh? a test in the lead up to the Beijing Games on, I think they were looking to test our peak flow. Yes. And I was, the results I got from my test, I was close to, I was borderline sport-induced asthmatic. But what yes. I wanted to ask your personal opinion was, what could have been some of those causes? Because I just got back from a, which would have been about two-week intense tra uh, training camp in Spain. And I think it was, I think I did the test the next day. Would it have been because of my body was under that amount of stress that I got those results? Okay. I can't make a medical diagnosis. All I can do is maybe give you a little bit of an opinion. Um, the only issue I have with lung function tests, that peak flow test, one, it's, it's technique dependent, and the other, it's effort dependent. And... If you have somebody who's, who's got any sort of bronchoconstriction, and if you get them to take a big breath in and a forced breath out, mm -hmm. you will actually cause the airways to constrict. Now, in science, a test should never interfere with the result. And here's a test to measure the caliber of the airways, but yet the very test is going to cause the airways to constrict. That's one thing. Secondly is the technique that was involved. Some people will have a different technique than others. Thirdly is Beijing. There is going to be a higher instance of pollution there 
And if you're prone to be triggered by airborne particles, it may have caused some bronchoconstriction. Fourthly, um, you may you might not necessarily have asthma per se, but overbreathing could be an issue. And it's the overbreathing that can cause even in normal individuals breathing too much can also cause the airways to constrict. Like how many people will get a cold or upper respiratory complaints after going on intense physical exercise? You know, it's it's fairly common. Mm. Here they don't have asthma, but their airways are being affected by how they're breathing during their physical exercise. So what I would say is for anybody who thinks, you know, do they have exercise induced or whatever, the only way to find out is from your medical doctor. Um, but the bolt score is a good way to, to get an idea of how you're breathing. Measure your bolt. If you put it into YouTube, you'll get it straight away. So bolt score, Patrick McKeown on YouTube. Measure it. You have to be sitting down for about 10 minutes when you do it, so you're rested. Measure your bolt and see how it is. If you're less than 20 seconds, you're going to be more prone to exercise induced asthma. And if you're less than 10 seconds, your breathing really needs attention. But even with 20 seconds, your breathing needs attention. Your objective is to try and get to 30 and 40 seconds. So, 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 well, thanks for answering that question. I, I, I don't think asthma has ever been a problem, but it was that, to a certain extent, those were like the alarm bells. To well, sure, we kind of looked yeah. at it. Well, what what are the what could have caused me to get the result? Obviously, like you say, it's external factors and and also the test uh, protocols yeah. all have a big bearing on the outcome of the results. Well, James. Start breathing through your nose during sleep if you have your mouth open. It's very, very common. Like Olympic athletes that I work with have to, can have dysfunctional breathing patterns. And if you've got a dysfunction, if any athlete has a dysfunctional breathing pattern during rest, it's going to be problematic during physical exercise. A new paper that was published last year looking at functional movement screen that they found that athletes with dysfunctional breathing patterns are at a higher risk of injury. Because the diaphragm is there for stability of the spine. And we're all one unit. And if something is off, especially breathing, because with athletes, breathing is often the one thing that holds them back. The intensity of which you can continue is not always limited by the legs or by the arms, but it's by the breath. So what I'm saying is get the breathing right. And again, nobody has anything to lose from it. No side effects. Um, and that the possibilities are there. So I think we'll wrap up the podcast there, Patrick. So once again, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks very much, James. And if you had to summarize this podcast into one sentence, what would that be? Um, I'd say for people to start becoming conscious of their breathing, and I'd encourage them to look at the TED Talk because it will give them an insight you know, I, I, like I want to really spread the awareness, the importance of nose breathing. Dr. Morris Cottle, he was an ENT back in the 1970s, and he founded the American Rhinological Society. He said the nose performs 30 functions in the human body, 30 functions. But yet, children are not being taught to nose breathe, and adults are not being taught to nose breathe. Nose breathing alone will help your overall health, your stress, and your sleep and your ability to perform physical exercise. I'm not saying it's all of the answers, but it's the first step. 
And the second step is ask, what is your bolt score? You'll get it on YouTube. If your nose gets stuffy, there's an exercise there as well to unblock the nose, just as what we spoke about. And start from there. You have nothing to lose. So that's some wise words. So for, like Patrick said, do check out that TED Talk and also the YouTube. So once again, Patrick, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, James. And for everybody else, this podcast will be aired every Thursday. So until next week, I will see you then. Thank <laughs> you.